Hello and welcome to RipperCast as we bring to you the February 2020 guest speaker talk from the meeting of the Whitechapel Society 1888, which is Dr. John Sugden in a talk entitled From Tyburn to Whitechapel, Philip Sugden's Journey into London's Criminal Past. Dr. Sugden is the twin brother of the late author of The Complete History of Jack the Ripper, a book which consistently ranks as one of the best general overviews of the Whitechapel murders. Although by no means perfect, if you've become interested in the Whitechapel murders within the last 30 years, odds are that Philip Sugden's The Complete History of Jack the Ripper was one of the first books you would have read. It's a work that has become hugely influential in the field of Ripperology. So to hear more about the life of this distinguished author and historian, let's venture into The Crutched Friar with the members of the Whitechapel Society and listen to Dr. John Sugden on Philip Sugden. Okay, well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the February 2020 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. 2020, was it really 20 years ago the millennium hit us? Was it really that long? I can't believe it. So thank you all for coming here to the Crutched Friars Pub in the heart of London's East End. And I'd also like to welcome the thousands of you who are listening to us through the Rippercast podcast. Now, I remember when I first became a member of the Society, and I needed a book to read up on the subject. I was new to the subject. And I had a really good conversation with a, a top man, a published author, um, your friend of mine, Mr. Bill Beadle. No better man to ask. And he recommended this book, which is on the table right in front of me here. And it's Philip Sugden's The Complete History of Jack the Ripper, and I absolutely devoured it. It was a terrific read, and it really sparked my interest in the subject. So we're really pleased tonight to have Philip's brother, Dr. John Sugden. You're very welcome, John. Thank you for coming down. He is currently working on a book that Philip started called The Forbidden Hero, The Georgian Underworld of Jack Shepard. John is a historian, a lecturer, a senior research fellow, and an associate editor of the American National Biography Project. He holds a doctorate on modern history and is the author of two biographies on Nelson, A Dream of Glory and Nelson, The Sword of Albion. And he's also written a book on Sir Francis Drake. Tonight, however, his feet is very much on dry land as he's going to take us on a tour from Tyburn to Whitechapel Philip Sugden's journey into London's criminal past. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a big Whitechapel Society welcome to Dr. John Sugden. I must admit, this was a big surprise because uh, I've only once been through Whitechapel and I know very little about it. I know Al McCogan was born here. But most of you don't remember who she was. You remember the girl with the big dresses and laughing her voice? And I think, I think some murders happened in Whitechapel. I think so. But um, they said, well, we don't know anything about your brother Philip, who, of course, wrote the classic book about Jack the Ripper. So come and tell us about him. He's a difficult man to speak about, particularly when he's your twin. But I'm going to try this evening. So this is very much in the, in the way of a personal memoir. And to perhaps explain to you how he got into a subject 
which seems so far away from his background as Jack the Ripper, and uh, what he tried to do with the subject. Now, the trouble was that Phil didn't enjoy attention. He had acquaintances, but very few close friends. He didn't care for public appearances. He consented in his life to do one radio interview, but he never kept the recording. He made one promotional trip for his books. He appeared on a talk show sandwiched between one of the hit men for the craze and Reg Presley of the Trogs, and that was as far as he got with that. His only TV documentary was for French television. And he didn't want a copy of that either. He was brilliantly successful as a teacher and a lecturer, but he gave only one public lecture in his life, and that was about the famous aviatrix Amy Johnson. So he was not a man who put himself about a great deal. The last documentary to attempt to recruit him was a Channel 4 documentary, 2003, that was entitled Invitation to a Hanging. And it was about one of Phil's favourite subjects, Jack Shepard, the 18th century criminal hero who was hanged at Tyburn. They asked him to appear on the programme. Philip insisted on seeing the script first, and he returned it to them, coupling a few suggestions for improvement with a very firm <coughs> negative. So, Phil wasn't somebody who was a, pop, a, a, a face that people knew. He didn't mix much either. After uh, our family home broke up, he lived alone and he seemed to like it that way. He was affable to neighbours, but most of them didn't even know his name. He never spoke about himself. His diaries speak a great deal about his solitary walks in the countryside. and They remind me a lot of W.H. Hudson's novels, if any of you are aware of them, which have a great reverence for wild places and wild creatures. And yet, although he was, in a way, a reclusive individual, the people who knew him all seemed to like him. They spoke of his knowledge, and they spoke of his kindness. Once I was stopped in the street by an unknown man who shook me by the hand and told me how he used to encounter Philip on early morning walks and have conversations with him. I look forward to meeting him, he said. He was a very clever man. And he enriched my life so much. A fellow historian wrote to me, a letter from Phil was always a great delight as we exchanged discoveries and opinions. He was a very wise counsellor, a kind, modest and generous friend as well as a major historian. And a teaching colleague found him a quiet, retiring person. But once she got to know him, 
his gentleness and friendliness were immediately clear. He was the first to send cards and gifts when our children were born, and I recall him walking from Bridgetown to Cannock to deliver them to us. So, Phil wasn't someone who made a great many friends, but the friends he made seemed to think a great deal of him. But in all honesty, they never really saw below the surface. He lived in himself, and in his books, and in his music. And even today, he remains a very difficult man to explain. I think it helps if we go further back to the early Victorian period, when our ancestors first came to Kingston-upon-Hull in Yorkshire, where we lived. Does anybody know Kingston-upon-Hull? You're very fortunate. <laughs> Has anybody even heard of it? Yes, right. Our ancestors came there in the 1820s. Some were smallholders or farm labourers, driven from the countryside by agricultural depression. Others belonged to maritime trades. Our paternal great-grandfathers lived on keelboats and barges, and they shifted cargoes along the coast or up the rivers, such as the Hoot, the Ouse, and the Humber, and the, Ke uh, the Don, and the, and, and the Kent. They all came to Hull looking for work, because in those days the town seemed to be thriving. The population quadrupled in 60 years. Now that proud new Hull that was emerging at that time, you can see it in all the picture postcards of the time. And they'll show you the bustling docks, the many and varied industries, magnificent buildings, busy shopping thoroughfares, desirable tree-lined suburban avenues. In other words, a sedate, modern city everybody would want to live in. But there was another hub. It wasn't on any postcards. It was a hall that the people in Whitechapel might have recognised. The streets of Hull weren't paved with gold. Oh no. Work was plentiful, but it was mostly seasonal, and it was semi or unskilled and hard. So it was work that taxed the weak, the disabled, the old. There was persistent unemployment and underemployment. There were also lean and mean streets, streets where feral children ran barefoot, and gangs such as the Silver Hatchets and the Twelve Apostles jostled passers-by. <coughs> and the health record of the town was exceptionally poor, weakened by the survival of slums, slum accommodation, low-lying, damp areas, inadequate disposal of waste, and the survival of open drains and sewers. Thousands of whole citizens at this time clung to life by their <coughs> fingertips. Life expectancy was low, 
and over those who were ill or disabled or simply old. There hung the feared and dehumanizing shadow of the workhouse. In Hull, over 700 citizens took their lives between 1837 and 1900. And if you read their suicide notes, they're rather sad because most of them were ordinary simple people, decent folks at the end of their resources. One waterman wrote in his suicide note, the last three years trade has been bad. My losses are heavy. It is a fearful end after 50 years struggling to maintain a respectable position. Heaven protect my family. They are innocent. A friend of a woman who threw herself from a high window in 1892 said she was very, very poor. She had had no work except two days a fortnight ago. She had no parish relief. Now, the history of our family was replete with examples that belonged to exactly this grim tapestry. In that family history, there are intergenerational families crowded into squalid rented rooms, feckless husbands who abandoned their families, flights from debt, young girls forced into early marriages to find breadwinners, Drunkards and domestic abusers, brushes with the law, quite a lot of them, illegitimate births and perhaps incest, and a run of early deaths. But this is a bleak picture, and there were also heroes and heroines in our family history, including uh, our grandparents, who held three generations of the family together through periods of acute difficulty and who we could remember with humility and pride. Now, Phil and I belong to the post-World War II generation. You know they were all known as baby boomers. We had a pinched childhood, but a very happy one. Our father was a painter and decorator. Our mother, Lily, was one of those heroines I mentioned. She worked in a factory to keep us at school. And throughout her life, she exemplified hard work and complete honesty and a very generous heart. She survived the whole Blitz, which is reputedly the biggest Blitz in the country, nearly 80% of the houses were destroyed or damaged. And she husbanded our meagre resources. But she was always there to give love and security to, the to things that all children need, including our lovely older sister, Sylvia, who had Down syndrome. But the difficult history of the family survived in the stories of those around us as well as the physical remains of what had gone before. And I think that was one reason why Philip 
and I were never interested in what we and Florence Nightingale would have called gilded lives, the privileged classes. We related above all to the common folk that history often forgets. And that was one reason why Phil empathised with the poor of Hanoverian London, for example, and why his Jack the Ripper was one of the first books to spotlight the victims trapped in their appalling lives. They were not for him disposable human trash. They were merely people defeated by hard and cruel times. Now then, this is something not many of you will know, since you know twins here, right? Same-sex twins don't always need a lot of friends, because you've always got somebody on tap at all times. And often you construct private worlds with your twin which separate you from other people. And so it was with us. Phil and I shared our fantasies as children. We created a world of our own. And it took us away from the starker realities of life around us. As children, we loved books. And we wrote them as well as read them. Between the age of eight and 16, I wrote 38 books, including one about colonial Louisiana. I had the audacity to send it to publishers, and I won't tell you what they said. We also loved natural history, and Philip kept lizards as pets. He wrote stories and painted pictures with animal themes. But then along the way, we discovered history. And I think you, you have all discovered history. It opens doors to new and exciting worlds that are very different than our own. Phil and I did well enough at school, but most of our studies were off-curricular. In other words, we weren't doing what we were supposed to be doing. Our favourite subject and part of everybody's childhood at that time was the history of the American frontier. We identified with the underdogs though. We cheered for the Indians rather than the US cavalry. And we had another eccentricity. From the beginning, we wanted to know about the real West, not the mythical one. Real people rather than invented ones. We wanted to know about Daniel Boone and Sitting Bull, rather than the Lone Ranger and his faithful Indian companion, Tom-Tom. But it was an excellent training ground, because there was no, more histor no historical theme that was more romanticised and misrepresented than America's westward expansion. Almost everything and everyone in it was encrusted with legend. And we found that chipping away the myths was interesting. It could be disillusioning too. It was heartbreaking to discover that Calamity Jane 
didn't really look like Doris Day at all. <laughs> but we enjoyed comparing accounts, finding contradictions in them, trying to piece together a credible picture, weighing one's assertion against another. So as we read ever more sophisticated literature, we gradually developed the skills of what we might call history detectives. And it was that love of investigation that led to a curiosity for anything that was unexplained or mystifying. When Phil was 14, he published an embarrassing article in our school magazine. The article was called The Case for the Abominable Snowman. In it, he tried to be even-handed and open-minded. He called for a fair hearing of the evidence rather than a curt dismissal. I don't believe that. Here's what he said. Three explanations of the mystery are offered to show that the Yeti is false. Disbelievers claim that the tracks were made by either a bear or a monkey. Some Yeti tracks are bigger than those of any monkey or ape, with the exception of the gorilla. The gorilla, however, could not survive in a cold climate and is found only in the hottest parts of Africa. And the tracks show little, if any, resemblance to the tracks of a bear. Now, whether you think there's a Yeti or not, you can see he was trying to <coughs> see his way through this mystery and find an answer. A decade later, growing older in the many ways in which history and myth mythology merge, he came to a different view. Is this love of mysteries that on 12th of May, 1962, I hope you're impressed with my memory of that date. Good on dates, not good on anything else, but good on dates. 12th of May, 1962. Philip went and bought his very first book on Jack the Ripper. It was Donald McCormick's Identity of Jack the Ripper. You all know it, don't you? And then 15 years old, Phil thought well of it, and he read it twice in a week. Our schoolmates thought he shouldn't be reading such books. But at the same time, when, uh, it, was, it was that period when one David Such was inflicting his famous song, Jack the Ripper, upon luckless teenage audiences. Do you remember that, anybody? Anyway, Jack the Ripper was a case that Philip would keep coming back to, and the next year he opened a file on it to keep all his stories. We left school at 16, found jobs in local industry. Phil was thoroughly unhappy as an office junior, and he joined me in night school classes to bring our qualifications up to speed. Phil's pay went on books that reflected the diversity of his interests. He passionately embraced one subject after another. Listen to some of these. Fishes. The American frontier. Pirates. Highwaymen. 
the great age of discovery. Cook's voyages, Spanish conquistadors, ancient and medieval military history, especially the campaigns of Hannibal, etc. You can see what sort of a boy he was, hopping from one subject to another, getting absolutely crazy about it and then dropping it and getting something else. But by 1970, when he began studying history at the University of Hull, he was already a confident researcher. He'd even written a report of his own progress, which he pompously entitled the development of scientific inquiry. By that time too, he dismissed most of the history he'd read and including everything he had written as novels, fiction, based on scant and ill-digested sources. He was becoming more critical with the evidence and relying upon his own judgment rather than plagiarising the opinions of others. And in 1969, he started visiting London regularly to search the British Museum's collection of 18th century newspapers and pamphlets. He got interested in two great figures from the early 18th century, Jonathan Wilde and Jack Shepard. Has anybody heard of these folks? Yeah. yeah. They were once really famous. He hoped that he might write an important book about them. And he began tormenting the principal archives in London for copies of crucial documents. He even opened a correspondence with leading scholars in the field. And his growing confidence was evident in his willingness to confront a man called Gerald Howson whose weighty book, Heat Taker General, The Rise and Fall of Jonathan Wilde, had quickly established itself as the standard work on the London underworld in Hanoverian times. Philip wrote to the author, suggesting that he had exaggerated Wilde's influence. He'd used unreliable pamphlets, and he'd misconstrued the career of Jack Shepherd, Wilde's associate. In other words, he was saying, Mr. Housen, you've got it wrong. Gerald Housen replied, defending himself and saying that he had used conjectural material to preserve the flow of narrative. And he ventured to say that that was how history gets written and why it is a vain hope to write an objective and impersonal view of anything. Phil didn't subscribe to that view, so he parted company with Gerald, but he did concede that House had done a very impressive job on Wilde, and in consequence he shifted his own focus from the notorious thief-taker to Jack Shepherd. The history staff at Hull University, you can imagine this young 20-odd-year-old person coming quite full of himself, really, quiet, but full of himself. The history staff at Hull University found that they were contending 
with an independently minded soul. He was going to go his own way. He clashed with one tutor over the reliability of Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire. He refused to sign up for a mandatory course in French, which he said would be of little use to him since he wanted to write a book about the Spanish and Portuguese Empire and wasn't interested in the French. In lieu of the French, he found a course in Spanish and organised a spell in Barcelona University. But nevertheless, in 1972, Philip graduated from Hull with a departmental prize in history. And he was immediately offered a place to study for his doctorate. <coughs> the usual requirements of a master's degree before you go on to the doctorate were waived. Professor Andrews, who regarded Phil as an outstanding protege, persuaded him to tackle a dissertation about the formation of the East India Company in the early 17th century. Now, how many of you would like to study the East India Company in the early 18th century, or indeed in any century? <laughs> I think it was a well-intentioned, it was obviously fitted in with, with Professor Andrews's interests, but it was a major mistake, because Philip's heart was somewhere else. His principal and growing interests were in the history of crime in London, and he was even then contemplating a study of the Whitechapel murders. In 1968 he wrote this, I have completed all the research I can do in Hull on this subject. I am vaguely interested in producing a comprehensive history, which also deals with the Ripper in legend, the various theories and the subject in literature. I've completed an exhaustive bibliography of primary and secondary sources and have to work through this. A good start has been made and several new facts have come to light, hitherto ignored. So you see in this the beginnings of this book he wrote many years later, 1968. Nevertheless, for a few years, poor Phil struggled on with the East India Company, growing increasingly disenchanted with it. In 1974, he took a flat in Cricklewood, and for two years he worked full-time in London archives, but increasingly his time was being spent on his own divergent interests, not on what he should have been doing, the East India Company. By the time his official grant ran out in 1976, he'd lost interest in the doctorate completely and abandoned it. Now there's a cautionary tale there, isn't there? You do your best work where the heart is. No. In his seven years of in higher education, you know what, you, some of you have been in higher education, even if you haven't, you've heard about it. The wild years, aren't they? You drew a lot of drinking and, and, and you make, make a lot of mates. But the strange thing about Philip is in seven years that he spent in higher education, he formed no enduring relationships with anybody. 
The only ones he did were people outside the university. One such kindred spirit was an ageing Australian writer who rejoiced in the impressive name of Jack Devere Beverly Allen. They met in a London hotel. Jack was in his 70s and Phil was in his 20s. But a strange bond developed between the two men, the one stumbling towards the end of his career and the other a young man still full of hope and ambition. Phil wrote, I would meet Jack at Victoria, outside the theatre in Victoria Street. We would talk over dinner. After we, afterwards, we might sometimes take a stroll around St James's Park and then return to our theatre rendezvous. There we would shake hands and say our goodbyes. And I would stand by the theatre awning and watch Jack's frail figure with its stick and his felt hat ambling across the crossing and disappear amidst the crowds about Victoria Underground Station. That old gentleman died in 1976, but his lady friend wrote <coughs> Philip that Jack was so grateful that you shared all his interests. You made him very happy during his last years. And as for Phil, two decades later he dedicated a book to Jack and Wendy in fond remembrance, he said, of the many hours we spent dreaming together. That was typical Phil, he liked people with dreams and ideas, even if they could never fulfil them, he liked people who had something they wanted to do, something that wasn't just ordinary. Another and more predictable influence was Derek Barlow, the senior archivist at the Public Record Office. Now, he'd written a massive book called Dick Turpin and the Gregory Gang. Has anybody read that one? I knew that, I knew that had picture. Yeah. That's a, it, it's a heavy book. Phil judged it the best biography that had ever been written of an English criminal. <coughs> he had nothing but praise for it and indeed Phil was astonished at the range of sources that Barlow had deployed in fact it made Phil quote ashamed of his own work he began to look on what he was doing as lazy and unimaginative he pursued Jack Shepard to all the sources he could find but Barlow suggested there was an immense wealth of sources that people never used, and that might have relevant material. So that was one lesson Philip learnt from Derrick. The other was his scrupulous transcription of primary records. After reading this massive tome about highwaymen, deer stealers and housebreakers, Phil knew that he had to raise his game, so he spent many years trying to live up to these new standards. So you can see that this was a challenge to him. He thought he was doing well till he read this book, and suddenly he thought, yeah, this, this, I'm, I'm no good, I've, I've, got to, I've got to shape up. 
Derek became a lifelong friend, though, because the two men were much alike. They were academic perfectionists. They were dedicated to the pursuit of truth. But they were equally gentle souls, both. He had a curiosity that crossed many boundaries. These weren't hobby horse historians who kept ploughing the same fields. They were obsessive pursuers of all sorts of quite unrelated subjects. Derek quite admired Philip too. He once called, he once wrote that uh, compared with Philip, Poirot was a right plot. <laughs> After leaving London, Philip had a spell of teaching in an old grammar school in the Midlands. And its colleagues found him, brackets, weird. He's weird. Until they got to know him. He was an outstanding teacher. His examination results were fantastic. And he had a demonstrate he demonstrated an ability to inspire youngsters of all levels of ability. He always turned up, said one person who knew him, in his blue jacket and dark polo jumper. No matter what the weather was, he had the same thing. He was not one for showy gestures, but he had unassuming <coughs> manners and quiet kindness. The weaker pupils, said another member of staff, once told me that Phil's lessons were the only ones worth coming to school for. But teaching was only a stopgap for Phil. And when our mother died and our father became frail, he decided he'd go back to Hull and return to the family home. Back in Hull he did some teaching. He taught for a while at an independent school and he also lectured for the East Riding Hull Education Service but mainly he worked on his books. Now we're getting close to Jack the Ripper, in case you're wondering. In 1983, Phil and I decided to collaborate on a book about unexplained mysteries. The idea was to take a manageable number of enigmas of various kinds tell their stories as accurately as we could and subject them to a penetrating analysis. We call the book Enigmas Explained. We changed the title because we found we couldn't explain the enigmas. So it then became The Cabinet of Curiosities, Seven Studies in Secret History. It's never published. Publishers tended to enthuse about it, and they all had their favourite chapters. But they were, they were put off by the sheer size of it, and also its honesty. They wanted sensation, and we didn't. As John Keats once said, do not all charms fly at the mere touch of cold philosophy. When you try to explain something, it loses its interest. If we knew who Jack the Ripper was, it wouldn't be interesting, would it? Yet Phil's stories in that book 
were little master classes in research. Now, I'm sorry, I'm going to apologise to you now because I was going to bring you a reprint of one of those chapters and let you have it as a freebie. But I didn't have time. But I will get it to you. I'm still going to do it. He wrote four for the book, Ghost, Bear and Devil, dealt with the strange tale of Spring-Heeled Jack. This is in your magazine, you're the weak. Not his story, but the story about it. Another one, the Massachusetts Sea Serpent of 1817. That went went back to Philip's interest in natural history. Another story, Satan in the Snow, tackled the Devon mystery of 1855. Some of you might know that. And Amy's Last Flight was about the disappearance of Amy Johnson. That was published in a pamphlet in 2016. Now, it was while this sub-project was floundering in the 80s that I suggested that what we really needed were icebreakers. Something that was going to make our names a little bit better known. I began writing A Life of Sir Francis Drake, which indeed became my first big American success. And Phil, I suggested, should return to his old plan of writing a serious, no-nonsense history of Jack the Ripper. I wrote Phil in July 1986 saying, I really think Drake and JTR are, are our brightest prospects, if not our only ones. Well, Phil, you, some of you will know, once said he had the misfortune to read all the books about Jack the Ripper. He was dismayed by what he thought was the deplorable level of the scholarship. His notes on those earlier Ripper books are sometimes quite devastating. This is an accolade for a venture by William Stewart. That ring a bell with anybody? William Stewart's book? Well, this was Philip's opinion of it. The description of the events is a mess stuffed with fictitious details and dialogue. Indeed, the author seems to have been pathologically incapable of getting the facts right, and his book is historically worthless. In another book, he gave a very brief, well, I don't know whether it's a compliment, certainly not, I regarded it as an expertly crafted confidence trick. But some authors, he believed, had done a lot better, and there was one in particular he admired. And you've probably read it. Don Rumbelow's The Complete Jack Ripper. In his review, Philip said, this book was an important landmark in Ripper research. It's honest and judicious. It was the first major book not to peddle a theory, and this enabled the author to view the subject objectively. It was also the first book to rest substantially upon the metropolitan police files, and it was wide-ranging. 
covering the subject in history and legend and ending with a chapter on Ripper-style serial murder. It was, in short, a JTR companion and, in addition, gave us a remarkably complete collection of illustrations. So you, you see that Phil gave credit when he thought there was credit. He regarded Don's book as the benchmark, the thing to aim for. And he was a little bit worried because Don seemed to have covered just about every aspect of it. But he thought he could make a contribution by adding detail and widening the search for new information, including use of the home office files. I hope those uh, smashing beer bottles over there are not and not getting in the way. I've never competed with beer bottles before. I'm glad the smashing over there not coming in my direction. <laughs> Philip knew, of course, yeah, Philip was there, had a great knowledge of local records. But he also knew that good history is not just a matter of looking through as many records as possible. It, it requires judgment to evaluate the records. And that's something you'll find if you're interested in Arthur Marwick's book, The Nature of History. There are several very good chapters on evaluating records. But Phil's command of these skills gave him the confidence to tackle Jack the Ripper on a large scale, but it took him nearly ten years to write. Like the best historians, he built history from the ground up. He allowed his conclusions to emerge and change from a patient culling of the primary evidence. He didn't believe you should read the books, get an idea from those, and then go to the, to the sources looking for what supported your ideas. You didn't believe in having an idea before you looked at the evidence. You look at the evidence and let the ideas come out. And in that, I agree with him, and we stand in opposition to the way history is taught in lots of schools today, schools and labs, universities. Philip was also meticulously accurate. He checked information and double-checked it. He checked full stops and commas and spellings, everything. When he obtained French documents relating to Ostrog, one of the Ripper's suspects, he sent copies to two independent language specialists to ensure that no misunderstandings had arisen. In his own research, he had overcome some formidable language difficulties. He mentioned that he learned Spanish as an undergraduate. He also taught himself Elizabethan script and 17th century abbreviated legal Latin, all in an attempt to master difficult source material. But you can do the work, but getting publishers to buy the results, that's something else. And Phil was not good at negotiating. This is what he said. I have to admit that I'm a difficult author to take on because I'm that rare bird, a writer who cares about his work and will brook little interference with it. When I started to hunt up a publisher, 
I found most of them had a preconceived idea of what a ripper book should be. 200 or so pages of fast-moving journalism crowned with an explosive identity theory. The idea that anyone would deem the case worthy of a serious and comprehensive study didn't seem to have occurred to them. One publisher wrote to me that he didn't feel, quote, that our readers will persevere through 500 documented pages only to discover we still don't know who Jack the Ripper was. I knew, said Phil, that there were brigades of JTR aficionados out there tired of humbug and hungry for authentic data. But persuading publishers that erudition, <coughs> careful research, richness of detail and documentation were strengths, not weaknesses, proved no easy task. <coughs> Phil rejected several offers to abridge his book, publish a short version of it, until he finally reached the desk of Nick Robinson, the publisher, who eventually issued the book. He said Phil understood what I was talking about straight away. So eventually he went to all these publishers, eventually found one, who said, yeah, yeah, I'll bring it here. That was the one he took. He poor contract. It was a very poor contract. Didn't get much money for it. Because he only wanted to publish it the way he wanted it to be published. As you all know, the complete history of Jack the Ripper was a success. It's currently standing at about 140,000 copies in this country. It's been translated into Italian and other languages. After finishing it, Phil returned to his study of Jack Shepard, the prison breaker and criminal hero of the early 18th century. I'm surprised some of you guys have heard of Jack Shepard because he's not much talked about now, but in the Victorian times, he was very much a public hero. There were lots and lots of penny dreadfuls about him and plays. He retitled his Jack Shepard Forbidden Hero, and that was to commemorate the many attempts made in the 19th century to curb literature on the subject in the belief that it was a bad influence on British youth. Now, Shepherd was a harder sell than Jack the Ripper, even though, even though his book was based on more than 40 years of research. I used to, I used to josh Philip about this. I say, do you know you spent twice as long writing that wretched book as he took to live that life? <laughs> he died at 21. Dr. Peter Ross, who completed an excellent doctorate on the same subject, graciously acknowledged the older historian's contribution. Phil, he said, has been the fount of all knowledge on the life of Jack Shepherd, and I thank him for his generosity, his encouragement, and his incredible ability to recall every detail and reference. The exchange of information between us has been one of the great pleasures of, our, of, of my life. 
Well, Forbidden Hero was actually finished. It's possibly, possibly the most remarkable biography of a common Londoner ever written. It accords its subject, a criminal who died on the gallows at Tyburn, the same care as if he had been a great statesman or a scientist. With his usual fearlessness, Phil drove deep into social history. He wrote about the conditions of apprenticeship, the vicissitudes and ups and downs of life and trade, the nature of the criminal empires of Jonathan Wilde, the nature of early law enforcement and of the capital's prison and judicial systems. In a letter he wrote, I have used this story to open a window into the criminal underworld of Hogarth's London and to give the reader an authentic sense of what it was like growing up and facing life's challenges in that time and place. No details escaped him. He even investigated the power, the power of the moonlight on the night of Jack Shepherd's famous escape from Newgate. So he could tell you how dark it was that night, at that time. <coughs> but sadly, the book encountered the same stubborn resistance from publishers as its predecessor. Philip's last years were ones of professional frustration. He received several offers to publish a scaled-down version of the book, but he always refused. He walked away from those offers. He began to talk about self-publishing rather than allowing it to be damaged or bowdlerized, as he called it. Writing to his friend Derek Barlow, he said, self-publishing, you can then write what you like without some damn fool of an editor compromising your work behind your back. Money has never figured largely in my literary ambitions. And now, at 63, it matters less than ever. For me, the scholarship and the integrity of the work are paramount. <coughs> the publishing establishment seems not to now to have given itself up almost entirely to the requirements of commerce. Your old friend Andrew Cook at the India office predicted our descent into a cultural dark age. He has been proven right. Quality literature doesn't seem to count for much anymore. So while you can find backers for books on well-known names like Nelson, Jack the Ripper, Keith Moon, Gordon Brown, Simon Cowell, or Katie Price. If you want to attempt anything worthwhile on something different, you have a real mountain to climb. It is, I am afraid, a familiar lament, and one I have heard from Juliet Barker, Paul Johnson, and Clive James, amongst others. The trouble is, that too many of today's up-and-coming editors, publishers and TV producers seem to be abysmally ignorant with cultural hinterlands 
extending little beyond British tabloid journalism and trash television. And they tend to assume that their readers are as clueless and undemanding as themselves. There's a lot of bitterness there, isn't there? There were a few publications in those last years, though. He began writing articles for the dictionary, the new dictionary of national biography. And several times the editors used to uh, call him looking for suggestions, particularly relating to criminal items. In fact, if you look up that book, you'll find an article on Jack the Ripper, not written by him, but because of him, because he was the one who wrote to them saying that you ought to include people who, whose names aren't known because they're unidentifiable. And he mentioned Jack who is the classic case, and that's why he's in the book. Another one he mentioned was Junius. Now, I bet he's going to fox you. Who knows who Junius was? Here's a history lesson for you. 18th century. He used to write anonymous letters to the press revealing the inside workings of the political establishment. He used to sign them juniors. And everybody was scared to hell about what he was going to say in the next letter because they knew he knew, they knew a lot of information, but they didn't know who he was. The other thing Phil did, he, wrote, he made all the Latin transcripts for this book, The Thief of Hearts, Claude Duval and the Gentleman Highwayman in Fact and Fiction which the two of us self-published as an exercise in 2015. This book dealt with the more, one of the more romantic and remarkable figures of the period, a French-born outlaw whose influence moulded our iconic image of the highwayman today. This is the guy who had the dance with the lady on the, when he got the coach. This was the last and one of the rarest items that bore Philip's name. Although, even at uh, that stage, he was looking forward to what his next book would be, after Jack Shepherd, And he decided he would write a popular life of the buccaneer, Sir Henry Morgan, the same bloke of West Indies, Port Royal, and Morgan Rum <coughs> fame. In those final years, Phil was as eclectic in his taste as ever. Incredibly, I mean incredibly, he was interested in New York punk music. And he'd never been to New York. And also, French art house cinema, when he couldn't speak French. But perhaps more than anything else, he enjoyed his rambles in the countryside, the places he'd been to as a boy. He was always a conservationist. His bookshelves were full of volumes about wildlife and conservation. And as far as he could, he avoided the material lifestyles that he thought were destroying our world. Your brother never seemed to demand a lot from life, a teaching colleague wrote to me. He lived frugally, never showed the least interest in owning a car. His environmental concerns determined his lifestyle. Such was his integrity.
who was a member of the Otter Trust, the Flora and Fauna Preservation Society, Yorkshire Wildlife, the National Trust, World Wildlife Fund, and so on. Spent most of his money that way. He took immense pleasure writing in letters to me about exploring little byways in the countryside. He wrote excitedly of the privilege he felt standing under majestic trees or watching a family of stoats gambling in the fields or a barn owl eyeing him suspiciously from a nearby fence post. Philip died suddenly and unexpectedly at home. He had a brain hemorrhage, probably on the afternoon of 4th of April 2014. I think he would have been moved, as I was, by a tribute paid to him by his good friend Stuart Evans, who has carried on the work of investigating the Whitechapel murders so magnificently. Philip was only two years older than me, Stuart said but it might have been 20. He was a friend, a father figure and mentor. I met him only once, but we shared many lengthy telephone conversations. He had the ability to lift me when I was feeling low, to advise me when I was seeking difficult answers, to counsel me when I had a problematic situation and to show me additional perspectives where I could see none. So what then did Phil do vis-à-vis the Whitechapel case? He cared about the truth behind the Whitechapel murders. And because of that, he despaired of the sensational, sloppy and sometimes downright dishonest way in which the story was being written. He felt the subject as fully worthy of scholarly care and attention as any significant piece of history, and that it did not deserve to be associated with sensation seekers, news hounds, fraudsters, fantasists and incompetent chroniclers. In his quest to rescue this and similar subjects, he received very little support from the academic and publishing worlds, and he had his critics, but he never backed off, never surrendered his principles. He raised a banner, a standard if you like. He hardly knew how many, if any, people would stand with him, but he would have stood alone if he had to do, because he had the courage of his convictions, which all good historians need. I think that probably some of you here are standing with Philip under that banner today because you share his desire for serious inquiry and truth. He didn't have all the answers, nor did he pretend to have them. And you may not agree with everything he said, but you will grant that what he said, he said honestly. And in that, he helped blaze a trail for others to follow. Thank you very much. You've been amazing.
we're going to um, throw the, the, the floor over for, for questions. And as always, if you can wait for me to come to you with the microphone, and I'll just pass it to you, and then we can ask a question. And if you just make your questions as quick as possible, we are just running a little bit short on time. I know, Bill, you've got a question. I'll come to you. Uh, just a, a comment, John, and that is that um, uh, I first read uh, Philip's book in 1996, and I will always recommend it because, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it is the very best book that has ever been written on the Jack the Ripper murders. It's an absolute masterclass of brilliant research and good writing. Thanks, Phil. Well, thank you very much. I think Phil would be really gratified that people did eventually, because he, he had a struggle to get it published, as you know. And then he had, you, whenever you publish a book, it's happened to me many times, you always find there's a bit of jealousy um, from people who think they're the authorities. Um, so that happens. Hi, thank you for sharing your lovely memories about you and your brother. I never got to meet Phil, though I've known his work for many years. I've been studying this subject for 32 years. Phil's book is what I've always called to everybody, because I'm a, a tour guide as well. On all my tours, people come up to me, what's the best book, what's the best book? Don's is a good book, but I say the Bible of Ripperology is Philip Sugden's book, and I've said that for the last 30 years. And I used to work at the Crime Museum at Scotland Yard, and we had some original artifacts from Jack Shepherd many years ago. And of course, people here may not realize that Jack Shepherd was born on White's Row, right next to Dorset Street. So I'm sure that amused Phil. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thanks very much. Great. Well said. Thank you. Okay. Do we have any more questions? We have one from Sue. How are you, Sue? Um, I loved your comment about the trogs, John. Um, yes. The, uh, the, 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 uh, my very first single was Wild Thing yeah. by the Trogs. And my, my, I think I played it rather a lot at great volume, and my dad called it, sorry about the podcast, a uh, bloody thing. Uh, anyway, my question was, I, I, am I right in saying that you were identical twins? Okay. Uh, I mean, you certainly look very much alike. Yeah, yeah. People, yeah. people say that we're very alike, but sometimes there, there were differences. So um, I'm, I'm never quite sure technically whether you were, yeah. Yeah. Um, so my question was, um, I, I've known of twins um, that have their own language. Did you and Philip have your own language? No, we, well, only in as much as we talked about the same things which nobody else knew about. So in that sense, we did have our own language, but we didn't invent... We didn't invent... A, a new language. We sometimes invented words which only we understood. Um, but I do know why this happens, because twins are so close. If you ever read about the Bronte sisters, they weren't twins, but they were siblings. And same-sex siblings, uh, close in age, are very similar to same-sex twins. And sometimes, particularly if they're brought up in a a close-knit family, sometimes where there's people, the Brontes were brought up in this isolated rectory. We were brought up in a working-class place on the wrong side of the tracks. 
you tend to find your siblings or your twin is the is the nearest thing to you, interested in the same things, have the same influences on you, you grow up in the same situations. Nobody is ever going to be as close to you as that person. So you spend so much time together. And because if you think of spending a lot of time with, say, your husband, obviously, or your wife, you can imagine that sometimes uh, a, a third person might not be privy to all that you know and say and think. So there is a bit of a mystery about twins. They, you know, they are, they are, I don't believe they have telepathy, by the way. That's what I thought you were going to ask me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think we share so many things. And often, I did say in the talk, sometimes because you share so much together, you separate yourself from other people because they're not part of that experience. And in that included our own parents. They didn't know what we were talking about most of the time. And they didn't appreciate it, or my father didn't. He thought when Phil was writing Jack the Ripper, my father said he was wasting his time because he wasn't going out and working. <coughs> he was sitting at home writing the book. He could not understand that somebody doing it. So, um, so Phil related to me because I did. Yeah. It's interesting. Somebody really ought to do study more studies of twins if that's possible. They are interesting people. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Listen, uh, thanks a lot, everybody, um, and a wonderful talk and a lovely, lovely man. Everybody, please, please say thank you to Dr. John Sugden. Fantastic. And that was Dr. John Sugden at the February 2020 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. We would like to thank Dr. Sugden, Steve Ratty, and the entire committee of the Whitechapel Society for making the release of this talk possible. For more information on the Whitechapel Society, please visit their website, whitechapelsociety.com, where you'll find out how to become a member, get information about future meetings, purchase books, and subscribe to the Whitechapel Society Journal. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 200 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations, all about Jack the Ripper and Victorian crime, society, and history. If you have any comments or questions about our podcasts, feel free to find us on the Casebook message boards or on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast.